This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strimple. We're all familiar with the idea of ice ages, during which the polar ice caps advanced to cover significant portions of their respective hemispheres, and then, after a period of tens to hundreds of thousands of years, retreat back to the polar regions. But now we believe that twice during the Earth's history, the ice advanced all the way to the equator, almost completely blanketing the Earth with a sheet of ice several kilometres thick. This is a snowball Earth hypothesis. Paul Hoffman is Emeritus Professor of Geology at Harvard University. His research on the sedimentary rocks of Namibia and that of his students in North America, Arctic Europe and Mongolia uncovered compelling evidence of glaciation near the equator about 650 million years ago in the Neoproterozoic. More than anyone else, he is responsible for synthesizing the evidence in the geological record to develop a persuasive case for a snowball Earth. Paul Hoffman, welcome to Geology Bites. Thanks, Oliver. I'm really pleased to be able to give a bite on snowball. What exactly do we mean when we talk about a snowball Earth? So to a climate scientist, a snowball Earth is an Earth that's uh, almost white, although there's a sort of a gray band along the equator. And it's white because the ocean is completely covered by ice. And so most of the sunlight is being reflected back into space. And so the air temperature is extremely cold. And the ice floating on the ocean gets very thick, uh, on the order of a kilometer or so in thickness. So it flows under its own weight, like an ice shelf. And so it flows towards the area where the ice is thinnest, which is at the equator. And so the ice is continually flowing towards the equator. And that flow is accommodated by melting at the base of the ice at the equator and then freeze on at higher latitudes, and also by the hydrologic cycle. The hydrologic cycle is weak in the snowball case because the air temperature is very cold, doesn't hold much moisture, but there is a hydrologic cycle. And it's causing net sublimation, that's conversion of ice into water vapor at the equator, and snowfall elsewhere. Now, the snow accumulation rates are pretty slow because of the weak hydrologic cycle. They're millimeters to centimeters per year, which doesn't sound like very much, but the snowball episodes last for tens of millions of years. And one centimeter of ice accumulation every year is 10 kilometers in a million years. So you can see over the, you know, the time span of these episodes, you can have quite a throughput of ice. Now that ice is floating on the ocean and is being sublimated at the equator, all that volcanic ash and dust from parts of the continents that aren't ice covered accumulates in the ice and then is exposed in the sublimation zone along the equator. And so it's quite dark from accumulation of dust and ash. And so there's meltwater production there. Continents in Snowball Earth are also mostly ice covered by slow moving ice sheets. But in the equatorial zone where there's net sublimation, there's bare ground. And so it's dark, absorbs more sunlight. Those would be the warmest spots. Can you give us some specifics about the timing of the Snowball Earth episodes in the Earth's history? Well, the two pretty certain ones occurred in rapid succession. Okay, And they began around 720 million years ago, the first one. And then the second one ended at 635 million years ago. The first one was longer. The second one was shorter. And there's about a 10 million year interlude between the two where there doesn't appear to have been any ice at all. 
Okay, so there were these two episodes. The second one ended at 6:35, so that's 65 million years before the first appearance of macroscopic animals in the fossil record in the Ediacaran period, and about 95 million years before the base of the Cambrian. The first snowball at 7:20, 7:17 to be exact, uh, when it started, that broke an interval of almost a billion and a half years when there's no evidence of large ice sheets anywhere. And then before that, there were, you know, ice ages again. And one of those, there's fragmentary evidence it was a snowball earth, but, but the, the evidence is very fragmentary. And of course, there hasn't been any snowball since 635. Okay, so what processes, what mechanisms could have brought about the near total glaciation of the earth? The mechanism actually arose in the very first climate models, numerical climate models that were ever done. And it's a persistent feature and a robust feature of all climate models, including the most advanced coupled uh, general circulation models. And it's basically the ice albedo feedback. Okay. And it occurs because of the fact that the ocean absorbs most of the solar energy that falls on. 80 or 90% of the solar energy is absorbed by liquid water. But if you freeze, if you cover that with snow, and particularly if it's covered by ice, then only 10 or 20% of the energy is being absorbed. Most of it's being reflected. And as a result, if there's any cooling effect, any climatic cooling for whatever reason, the area of snow and ice gets larger. And so more of the sunlight is being reflected rather than being absorbed. So there's an additional cooling effect. That's the feedback. Okay. the ice albedo feedback. Now, the thing is that as the polar caps get larger for each increment that they advance towards the equator, the area that they cover, the area that changes color, gets larger and larger because the Earth is fatter in the middle, you know, at the equator. And so the feedback gets stronger and stronger. And what came out of these numerical models is there's this critical point beyond which the feedback is unstoppable and the polar caps expand until they meet at the equator. And because the air temperature is then so cold, the ice rapidly thickens. And that instability, you know, has been known to climate scientists since the very first climate models in the mid-1960s. And it's been confirmed over and over and over again. And so it's very difficult to have a nice margin in the ocean that's stable at a low latitude. They call it a bifurcation because it means you can either have no ice, which is where we've been for most of geologic history. 89% of the last three billion years has been no large ice sheets anywhere. And then for 11%, there have been some large ice sheets. And then for about 2% of the last 3 billion years, there's been the snowball. So there's these three climate states. And the climate modelers always assumed that the snowball had never happened. And so they never talked to geologists. And the geologists had a lot of evidence, but they didn't know what to make of it. So they put it in a drawer. So often we had this runaway glaciation. Why didn't the snowball earth last forever? Well, of course, the climate physicists thought that it would, and that's why they assumed it had never happened, because if it had happened, we wouldn't be here. But then a, a trio of planetary uh, physicists at the University of Michigan, they thought about why is the Earth's planet stable over billions of years, despite the fact the sun's getting brighter and brighter? And they worked it out that it was because of the silicate weathering feedback which is a negative feedback. You know, the ice albedo feedback is a positive feedback. It's a negative feedback. And the way it works is that if it gets colder for any reason, then the rate of weathering and the rate of drawdown of CO2 goes down. 
And as a result, the CO2 that's coming out of volcanoes builds up and that prevents any further cooling. And it stabilizes the climate. It allows climate change, but, but it stabilizes from going to runaway warming or runaway cooling. And so what they realized is that if the worth did go into a snowball, you couldn't get rid of the CO2. You couldn't get it out of the atmosphere because CO2 is only soluble in liquid rain, not in snow. But the snowball, the CO2 would continue to come out of volcanoes. And so the carbon dioxide would accumulate in the atmosphere. And because you would need a hundred times or several hundred times more increase in carbon dioxide concentration, it would take a long time for the carbon dioxide to build up and make a strong enough greenhouse effect to overcome the white earth albedo. But when it reached that critical level of carbon dioxide <laughs> and it would start to melt, then when it starts to melt, then you're replacing white ice with dark water. So that same ice albedo feedback works in reverse, and the whole thing melts down extremely rapidly, 1,000, 2,000 years maybe. And then you have the hottest climate the Earth's ever experienced because you have this huge amount of carbon dioxide, but you have a dark surface. And it, it takes quite a long time, 10 million years or so, to draw down that carbon dioxide to weather. This might be a kind of obvious question, but if the Earth is covered by several kilometers of ice, how does the outgassing from the volcanoes, how does the CO2 get into the atmosphere? So the most CO2-rich volcanoes are these stratovolcanoes that stand up. They're, they're quite high. And so if they get buried by an ice sheet, the summits where the, you know, where the outgassing is occurring mainly, the ice is fairly thin there. And moreover, as what we know from Iceland, <laughs> you know, there are volcanoes that go off under Iceland that are underneath an ice sheet. It only takes a few weeks once the eruption starts for the melting to make a pipe through the ice. <laughs> Any European commercial airline pilot can tell you that. And also, of course, there's a lot of CO2 that's coming out of mid-ocean ridge volcanoes. And that CO2 is going directly into the ocean, but that leaks out into the atmosphere through cracks because of the marine ice that's floating on the ocean is flowing. And so there are always cracks developing, particularly along coastlines where the floating moving ice abuts against the landfast ice. And so there's shearing there. And so there's continual cracks developing. And air-sea gas exchange is pretty rapid. So the ocean and atmosphere were probably in equilibrium on the snowball timescale with respect to CO2. Seafloor weathering does accumulate a little bit, pretty slow because of the very cold air temperature. But as the CO2 builds up and the seawater gets more acid, that seafloor weathering, which consumes carbon dioxide, becomes a little stronger. So the CO2 rise is nonlinear. And that could help to explain why the two snowballs are quite different in duration. It wouldn't take much because of the nonlinear CO2 rise. It, you could get quite a long time difference to get to the same CO2 level if conditions were slightly different. Okay, let's start talking about the evidence for snowball earth in the geological record. Ice ages have been documented extensively in the geological record. Indeed, there's a whole geological period called the Cryogenian, which is named after the very cold climate and frequent ice ages thought to have prevailed then. So what was it that led us to suspect that ice once covered the entire globe? Well, so the Cryogenian is the period of the two snowballs. And uh, so there were basically three lines of evidence. First was that the glacial deposits are very widespread. Okay, they're present across all the continents and they occur in these sediments not too far below the Cambrian. And we didn't know exactly that they were the same age, but that's been known since the 1930s, or in fact, the very early 1930s, 
that glacial deposits this age are widespread on every continent, more widespread than any other ice age. So that was the first line of evidence. The second one, and the one that particularly attracted me to the problem, was that you find glacial deposits that are conformably interbedded with thick platform, marine platform carbonate successions. That was the second thing. And then the third was paleomagnetic evidence that the glacial deposits formed very close to the equator. So how can we tell if a deposit has a glacial origin? Very similar to deposits of the last ice age. So you find tills. Tills, an old Scottish farmer's term for a stiff clay confusedly mixed with boulders. That's what it was originally defined by James Smith, 1836. And the reason it's stiff because it had a glacier sitting on it. And the boulders, a wide variety of derivations, often from afar, and the boulders are often rounded and highly smooth and polished by the action of the glacier, the milling that goes on underneath the glacier. And also many of the boulders are faceted and striated, scratched in various directions because of the, the glacial action. There were massive tills and stratified tills. And the stratified tills, which are deposited underwater, but beneath floating ice in front of a grounding line of a tidewater glacier, they're peppered with dropstones. And these dropstones melt out of a floating ice shelf or icebergs, and they sink through the water column and impact the bottom and leave these beautiful little miniature impact structures. And so you can see millions of dropstones in a given outcrop. And so these cryogenian deposits look the same as the much younger ones. It's just that they're more widespread and they're often composed entirely of carbonate because the glaciers were running on carbonate platforms, which bring us to the second point, carbonate platforms. What are these? If you remember, the first success of Charles Darwin as a scientist was his theory of coral reefs and atolls. And what he pointed out was that any seamounts or islands and whatnot in the tropical oceans have coral reefs that grow on them and they produce a lot of carbonate and carbonate debris. If the volcanic mountain or the island or whatever it is slowly sinking, the coral, which grows rapidly when it's in the surface sunlight ocean, keeps pace with the substance and you build up this pedestal, which has a flat top, which gives us that sea level of carbonate. And these pedestals can be very large, like the Great Bahama Bank. I mean, it's hundreds of kilometers in diameter. They can border coastlines like Yucatan Shelf in Mexico. Now, what Darwin pointed out is that these only form in the tropical ocean at latitudes less than 35 degrees. And the reason for that is because of basic saturation chemistry of calcium carbonate. It's a peculiar salt. It's more soluble in cold water than in warm water. And so carbonate, which is produced because carbonate alkalinity is coming into the ocean from warming, you know, stuff comes in, stuff has to go out. And so, but the carbonate preferentially forms in the warmest part of the surface ocean. Carbonate is more soluble at depth because of the pressure effect. So it's the warmest part of the surface ocean. So I'm saying, I'm a carbonate geologist. So I say to myself, if there are glacial deposits on carbonate platforms, which are at sea level in the warmest part of the ocean, and there's no mountains from which glaciers could descend from frigid heights. If there are glaciers there, then all the colder parts of the world have to be frozen as well. And so that was one of the reasons I went to Namibia, just to make sure that the glacial deposits are pretty conformable with the carbonates, that there's not big gaps in the stratigraphic record that you know, could allow you know, large changes in latitude, for example. And so I spent five years in Namibia proving to myself that no, it's pretty much a stratigraphic continuum. 
And then the third is the paleomagnetic evidence. And basically, if you can recognize and prove that the remnant magnetization in the rock originated at the time the rock formed, then you can tell the latitude because the magnetic lines of force at the equator are basically horizontal and at the pole, they're vertical. And so there's a simple mathematical relationship between the inclination of the magnetical force lines and the latitude. And so what was found in Australia and also in North America, it was demonstrated that the glacial deposits formed very close to the Paleo Equator. Okay, so you discussed the carbonate platforms interleaved with the glacial deposits as evidence of glaciation at sea level in the tropics. But there's also key evidence from a different type of carbonate deposit that overlies the glacial deposits, the so-called cap carbonates. So cap carbonates are unique to cryogenian glaciations. They're called caps because they lie directly on top of the last glacial deposit. So you can recognize the deglaciation and immediately on top, there are these very distinctive layers of carbonate, either dolomite or limestone. They can be anywhere from meters to hundreds of meters thick, and they occur virtually everywhere. So they occur in all latitudes. So first of all, carbonates don't do that. Carbonates are normally at low latitude, particularly non-skeletal carbonate, but these are everywhere. And they have a lot of structures and textures and compositional aspects that say that the water they precipitated from was hugely oversaturated. Now, that's a very unusual situation because the degree of oversaturation in seawater is normally limited by carbonate production. So I was fascinated by cap carbonates. And at first, it seemed that that was counter to the snowball hypothesis, because the snowball hypothesis said there's going to be very high carbon dioxide concentration towards the end and in the aftermath. And carbon dioxide is an acid, okay? It makes carbonate dissolve, not precipitate. It lowers the saturation state. So what's going on here? And so that's when my colleague, Dan Schrag, a young geochemical oceanographer, figured out the explanation for cap carbonates. And what it is, it's, it's called buffering. That's the chemical term for it. And when you have acid indigestion, you take tablets, and those tablets used to be called bufferin, and it was a very good name for it, because those tablets are just calcium carbonate, limestone ground up into a fine powder. And if you chew up and swallow a whole bunch of those tablets, after a while, you start to feel better. And so what is going on in your stomach is that that calcium carbonate is dissolving. And that dissolution reduces the acidity, okay? And it's exactly the same in the snowball ocean. When it starts to get acidified because of carbonic acid, what happens is that the tablets, which are, is all this carbonate rock flour that the glaciers are delivering into the ocean, it's dissolving. And that dissolution prevents the ocean from getting too acidic. And it also maintains the saturation state of the ocean. So it's always poised to precipitate, you know, carbonate again, if conditions should change. Now, over the range of carbon dioxide values that you need to deglaciate a snowball earth, the amount of carbonate that goes into solution in the ocean is sufficient to cover the entire continental surface area of the earth by four meters of carbonate, you see? Now, as soon as the snowball melts down and the ocean rapidly warms up, so that's driving up the carbonate saturation, and the continents get flooded and CO2 starts to get drawn down from wind, all that dissolved carbonate has to come back out again, and that's the cap carbonate. <laughs> and it has the same carbon isotopic composition as the youngest preglacial rocks because it's the same carbonate. The carbon isotopes don't change. Of course they don't because it's just recycled. And so for me, the fact that Snowball explained the cap carbonates, in fact, it became a prediction rather than a paradox, 
you know, that's when I really started thinking, you know, time to take this very seriously. Okay, so at the end of the snowball, the oceans warm and the carbon dioxide levels diminish. The oceans re-equilibrate, causing the dissolved carbonate, which had acted as a naturally induced pH buffer, to precipitate out to form the cap carbonates. And those cap carbonates would have been global, not just limited to the tropics, right? Yep, global. And they're very unusual. I mean, the Ediacaran period is defined at the end of the last snowball because everyone can recognize the cap carbonate everywhere. <laughs> and there's not been a single complaint about that choice as the golden spike for the Ediacaran period. It works perfectly. Are there any other lines of evidence for the snowball earth hypothesis? Yeah, so there's one that's emerging, and I think it's really fascinating. And I expect in the end, it'll be one of the most persuasive ones. And that's the... Uh, <laughs> the gene sequences in modern organisms. Now, one of the things that's emerged from what's called ancestral state reconstruction, which is statistical correlation between gene sequences and habitat, fresh water, salt water, warm, cold, et cetera, et cetera. And then you map those correlations onto phylogenetic trees that you get from molecular clocks, which is also from gene sequencing. So one of the controversial things that has been arising is that most primary producers, okay, and these are photosynthetic organisms, so that includes cyanobacteria and the ancient algae, the red and the green, the chromophyte algae, and their descendants, all land plants, they appear to have evolved over most of their evolutionary history in fresh water. Right? And only in the last six or 700 million years, roughly speaking, have they radiated into marine environments. Now, paleontologists say this is completely ridiculous because we have a fossil record of cyanobacteria that look a lot like modern ones that go back over 2 billion years ago. And we have a fossil record of multicellular algae, red and green algae, that go back over 1 billion years ago long before the snowball. So, you know, this is complete nonsense. They're both right. The point is that all living things descended from the snowball survivors. Okay? So, of course, there were algae and cyanobacteria in the oceans, but when the lights went out, they mostly didn't survive. So who survived? Because the snowball comes very rapidly. The evolution can't keep pace. So it's got to be those that are pre-adapted. So who's pre-adapted? Well, <laughs> of course, it's the polar alpine organisms that have been living on glaciers and beside glaciers all along. And for them, it's a field day because suddenly their habitat greatly expands. It's at the equator. It's a lot easier place than having to deal with the polar winters. Okay, So they expand. They occupy all that dust habitat where all the meltwater is and brilliant sunlight and lakes on the land, which are very rich in nutrients. But the biggest of those alpine polar habitats are the meltwater-based habitats. And of course, that's freshwater. And they today, if you look at those habitats, they have cyanobacteria and they have green algae and they have fungi and they have heterotroph, protists. They even have some metazoans. And so those organisms that were occupying in the equatorial zone, all those habitats, when the snowball melted down, they all got flooded. They all ended up in the ocean, in an ocean that's charged with nutrients because of nil productivity, warming rapidly. And so they radiate. So the paleontology and the molecular biology, they're both right. And they're telling a great story. That's the greatest story that we and everything else we came from the survivors of Snowball Earth. So it was a very important filter. And if it's true, the evidence is going to be abundantly clear when people get onto how, how you can interpret it. 
in the record of living organisms because the amount of data that is in the sequences of base pairs and organic molecules. I mean, it, this is why it's been the dominant science for the last 60 years and in all likelihood will be for the next 60 years. Aren't we also partially descended from the archaea and couldn't the archaea survive when the lights went out because they didn't depend on the lights? Sure, of course. Well, by survivors, I mean all survivors. And so there's mm -hmm. subsurface life all too. They, that would, may not have even known a snowball occurred. But primary production is mainly from photosynthesis, okay? <laughs> There's a surprising biomass in the hot, deep biosphere, but, you know, <laughs> the turnover rate probably isn't too great. But I'm not excluding that. So you described how there's a positive feedback loop that leads to a runaway glaciation. But why could this have happened only twice in Earth history? In fact, why didn't every ice age lead to a snowball? Well, so it's the, uh, it's the negative feedback from the temperature dependence of the silicate weather. That climate stabilizes, gives us our habitable planet that also tends to limit the climatic extremes. And so in most cases, it prevents it. It's a very potent uh, negative feedback, but it's ponderously slow. It operates on a timescale of 100,000 to a million years. And so if you do something fast, you can beat it. And so the trick is to have a cold climate to begin with because that makes it closer to the point of the instability. There was a climate model published nearly 20 years ago that came to the conclusion that if the KT impact occurred today, it would produce a snowball. And that's because the ocean in the Cretaceous was 10 to 12 degrees, whole ocean mean temperature. Whereas today it's about one and a half degrees. So it's a lot easier to freeze it over. And with an impact, you get not much sunlight for a decade or so until all the dust and whatnot settles. So you don't have a lot of time. So to account for a snowball, which is a rare phenomenon, you need either a rare event or a rare combination of events. And uh, I think the most sensible way is to think, well, it's most likely to occur in a time when the climate is fairly cold to begin with. And a lot of people think that the cryogenian should have been a generally cold period because of the breakup of the Rodinia supercontinent. And that should increase both weathering and also carbon burial. And so it makes sense that you'd have a stable climate, but a, you know, a lower CO2 and a, a cool climate relative to the long-term norm. Now, something rare had to happen. And for the first snowball, it's pretty clear from the coincidence that it was an enormous outpouring of lava, which is now in Arctic Canada, all the way from Yukon to Greenland, that occurred 719 million years ago. And at that time, it was right on the equator. We know that because there's robust paleomagnetic data from those lavas. Okay. Also, those lavas are very rich in sulfur. And that's because they came up through a sequence that was rich in sulfate evaporites. So now you've got an unusual combination of events here. You have a very large igneous province. There are a lot of those, but it was right on the equator, okay? And it's rich in sulfur. So that means if you had a very thick lava flow and you had a thermal plume like you see in Iceland, that's capable of injecting sulfate aerosol into the stratosphere. And, you know, that's geoengineering. That makes the climate cooler. That's what we're going to do about global warming. Anyway, now... Here's where the cold climate helps, because if the climate is cold, the stratosphere becomes lower. See, that's why Iceland volcanoes had a significant climatic effect. The base of the stratosphere, the tropopause, is very low at high latitude. It's much higher in the tropics. But in the cold climate, it comes down a little bit. So you have this combination of things, large igneous province, very rich in sulfur, 
right on the equator. So maybe in an already cold climate, maybe that was what broke through on short time scale faster than the silicate weathering feedback could moderate. But there's a counter theory, and that is that these lavas, because they're right on the equator again, weathered extremely rapidly, and that weathering pulled down CO2. And because it was right on the equator, the weathering wasn't so reduced by the, by the temperature, the silicate weathering feedback. It wouldn't be very effective right on the equator because it's so hot and also a lot of rainfall. So two competing theories, but both linked the Sturdian to this event. Just to explain, the KT impact you mentioned a few minutes ago is the asteroid impact that is thought to have caused the mass extinction, including that of the dinosaurs, which marked the end of the Cretaceous period 66 million years ago. And the Sturgeon and Marinoan are the names of the first and second snowball glaciations. Now here's the problem. No such event is known before the Marinoan. It's possible there is a big igneous event in the south margin of the uh, Jinling origin that separates South China and North China. But it's, it's all deformed and it's not really precisely dated. Hard to know its original extent. We don't really have a, an evident trigger for the second snowball. And so the fact that they occurred in rapid succession says that, no, it wasn't just this event. It was something about the ambient condition at that time. So the why question is still out there. We don't have a fully satisfactory explanation. It seems as if a runaway warming process happened on Venus, which has been a baking inferno ever since. What's different about Venus that prevented it from restoring more moderate conditions as, as we have on Earth? Well, first of all, the, the Venus atmosphere is 100 times more massive than the Earth's atmosphere. And it's mainly composed of carbon dioxide and a little bit of sulfur dioxide. And they're both greenhouse gases. The Earth's atmosphere is mostly nitrogen and oxygen, neither of which are greenhouse gases. But what we don't know about Venus, I think I'm not an expert on this, but my impression is that it's still not clear whether the difference in the Venusian atmosphere is the way the atmosphere was acquired to begin with. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty about how planets acquire atmosphere. The primary atmosphere should have all been stripped away during the T-Tauri phase of early stellar evolution. So the general thinking is that the atmosphere is secondary and was either acquired or came from outgassing from the magma ocean. And there are details of the chemistry of the magma ocean that apparently significantly impacts on the composition of the atmosphere. So we don't know whether the difference between Venus and Earth is, on the one hand, the difference in the composition of the atmosphere from the start, or whether it's a different trajectory over geologic time because Venus is closer to the sun. And the sun, of course, is brightening all the time. So Venus is ahead of us. How was the idea of the snowball Earth received by the geological research community when it was first proposed in 1989? Incredulity and disbelief. My friends thought I was going to ruin a good reputation. And a lot of other people thought that I was making a mockery of the discipline. But the pendulum has swung the other way now. What convinced people? Well, you remember what Max Planck said. He said that science advances one funeral at a time. It's true. It has changed, but it's been generational change. So the most currently active workers now are on board with the snowball, and generally they're, they're satisfied with the evidence. The reason for the change depends on the discipline. So the climate people are convinced because of the robustness of the ice albedo instability or bifurcation, as they call it. The geochemists are more convinced by the evidence from the cap carbonates, including isotopic evidence, direct evidence for high CO2. 
from triple oxygen isotopes and other fancy things like that. Geologists, I think, were most convinced by the dating, by the demonstration from radiometric dating, both uranium lead and rhenium osmium, that both snowballs deglaciated simultaneously on many different continents, okay, within the resolution of the dating, less than you know, half a million years or so. And according to some geochemical arguments, even on the time scale, much less than that. And biologists probably haven't decided yet. That will probably come mostly from the evidence from molecular biology and also a better understanding of the diversity of polar alpine ecosystems. That will also be a big help. So the ecology. When were you personally convinced that the snowball earth was real? <laughs> I became convinced that it would need to be taken very seriously when Dan Schrag explained the cap carbonates to me. And so it was kind of stepwise. But um, before I published my first paper on it, I was pretty convinced. I never expected to see people accepted in my lifetime. Paul Hoffman, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Oliver. For more about Geology Bites, as well as pictures and illustrations that support this podcast, you can go to geologybites.com.